Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, it would be page 1125. Romans 1. Text before us this morning, verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. These two verses, really in... uh, in a very significant way, it could be said to be that section of Scripture which launched the Reformation. It was from this text that an obscure German monk by the name of Martin Luther discovered, really, the essence of the Gospel, justification by grace through faith alone, shattering the chains of medieval Roman Catholicism that had bound the church for a thousand years. This is a very powerful text of Scripture that is before us this morning. You know, previously, verse 14, the Apostle Paul said he was under obligation to preach the Gospel to both the cultured and the uncultured, those who had achieved intellectual success and those who were uneducated, the learned and the unlearned. And there was no place in the whole Roman Empire, I suppose, where these classes of people, cultured and uncultured, learned and unlearned, could be found in greater quantities than here in the capital city of Rome. This was in a very great sense to walk into the lion's den. Much like um, Washington, D.C., I suppose, today is the center of the nation's best and brightest minds, right? They are gathered in that Washington beltway, the think tanks, those who are the wealthy and the powerful, the strong personalities that pull the levers of government. They are to be found in that area. And so it was in Rome, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. They would have their share of philosophers, thinkers. But nowhere would the concentration be more dense than it was there in the capital city of Rome. This is where the center of the Roman Empire, an empire that stretches beyond really our imagination, we have trouble conceiving of the power and, and expanse and might of this world empire. It was all that the heartbeat of it all was centered there in the capital city of Rome, and it was to Rome that the Apostle Paul writes this letter. Some postulate that uh, Paul was afraid to go there. That was kind of a common uh, complaint against him at that time in the first century, that Paul, he might be bold when he's far away, but when he gets up close, right, he sort of chickens out. And so he might write many bold things, but he's certainly not going to come to Rome and preach like that. Maybe that's why some would say that he has delayed so long in coming to the capital city. Maybe he was ashamed to meet the intelligentsia of his day. Notice how he would answer that charge here in verse 15, right? Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Eager to preach the gospel. Why, Paul? 
Why would you say that you are eager to preach the gospel, particularly in the city of Rome? The answer for us, beloved, is this morning here in verses 16 and 17. Paul gives us in these verses three reasons why he is eager to preach. I love this text, by the way. I even like the title. That's why I put it down. He is eager to preach in Rome. And he gives us three reasons in verses 16 and 17 as to why he is eager to preach. Each of these three reasons begins with the conjunction gar in the Greek or for as translated in the English. So three times the conjunction for appears and it links together Paul's three reasons each one with the previous reason and, and each one deeper and a fuller explanation of the previous reason. And they all drive to the answer of that profound question of why was Paul eager to preach the gospel? Three reasons. As we unpack these three reasons this morning, I hope that it will encourage us as well to be eager to preach the gospel to others. As we see why Paul was eager, my hope is that we will be likewise eager. The first reason for us here in verse 16, and maybe I should just read the two verses for you, 16 and 17. Probably half of you could recite them, but let me read them to you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Three reasons that Paul gives us here. As I said, each one begins with the conjunction for. And the first reason in verse 16 that Paul is eager to preach the gospel, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's as simple as that. His first reason is he is not ashamed of it. He is not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the gospel is inherently shameful to humanity. It is an inherently shameful message. And Paul knew full well the temptation to be ashamed. The temptation that comes to each and every one of us to be ashamed of the gospel in view of the world's continuing hostility to it. The world is hostile to this message. That in and of itself provides temptation to be ashamed of it. And beyond that, the, it is an unimpressive message by human standards. It is a message that is rejected, that is received with hostility, and it is a message that by all human standards is a very unimpressive message, particularly when weighed against the wisdom of the world. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this topic in chapter 1 there. Verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is a foolish message, literally a moronic message. It is a message for morons. He says in verses 22 and 23 in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians 1, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness, lunacy, a message for morons. So for all you morons who have gathered here this morning, this is our message. 
And the sooner we become comfortable with that reality, the closer we will become to Paul's statement that he is not ashamed of it. He is not ashamed. You know, at the end of his life, this was a continuing temptation. It's your temptation and it is mine. And Paul identifies with it. And you know, by the end of his life, it's, it's still a reality. He writes to Timothy. Right near the end of his life, he's facing the uh, Roman executioner's blade. And he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Do not be ashamed. This word is, is used, it's the same word used there in, uh, for, in 2 Timothy, same word used here in Romans 1, verse 16. Episkunamai in the Greek, and it is translated nicely in the English as ashamed. And it's the same word that Jesus uses and the same concept that he addresses in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, when he has a large crowd of followers that have gathered uh, behind him, sort of following him along, and he pauses and he turns to address them. And when he addresses this crowd, he, he uh, speaks to them about being ashamed. And he summons the multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. The temptation to be ashamed is real. It is a real and present danger. Now, to be ashamed means to shrink back. It means to... to to uh, fall back. It means to fail to openly declare our allegiances. This is what it means to be ashamed. It is the idea of cowering in the face of some kind of threat. To hide one's lamp under a bushel basket, to use another biblical expression. What is it about the Gospel that tempts us to shame? What is it? Well, it's the message, beloved. It is the message of the gospel. And the, and the message is that you are totally sinful. You are totally sinful. You are completely helpless to do anything about your sin. You deserve to go to hell. And that is where you are headed. You deserve it and you're on your way there unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes and rescues you. God offers you a substitute to take your place. Somebody to bear your penalty, but only on the condition that you totally surrender yourself to Him. That you give up your independence, the notion that you can live your life any way you like. And you surrender yourself to Him as your Lord, your Master, the ruler and governor of your life. If you will do this by faith, 
God will restore the relationship between you and He that was severed by your sin. That is the Gospel message. And that is a shameful message. That is not a popular message. That is a message that is not well received. When it begins, it's saying you are totally sinful and you're on your way to hell and that's where you deserve to go. That cuts against the human psyche. The unbeliever, their mind is in bondage. Their mind is in bondage to sin and so is their will. And to receive a message like that does not appear to be good news. The Gospel means good news. But it's only good to those who embrace it by faith. To the rest, it is anything but good. It is an offensive message. It is a message that puts the hair on the back of your neck up straight. It's a message that can get you punched in the nose and much worse. It condemns the very notion of independence that people cherish so much. That they are the captain of their own ship. The master of their own destiny. That their works are so good and so meritorious that at the end of time when they stand before God who for their, in their minds is some sort of an ancient grandfatherly type who will look at their lives and say, yes, you've done a few things wrong, but look at all the good you've done. Enter into your well-deserved rest. And we come along and we say, Unless you are perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to make it. And you don't deserve it. When people hear that message, they throw up barriers. They throw up barriers. They compose counter-arguments. They seek to evade the painful reality of it all. You get a negative reaction, don't you? When you present this message, you can expect a negative reaction. And when that happens, you and I frequently commit several sins. When that negative reaction comes, you and I frequently commit several sins. Here they are. We begin with the sin of idolatry. When the unbeliever pushes back, we begin with the sin of idolatry. That is, we are men-pleasers by nature. We don't want to run the risk of scorn or ridicule. Instead, we want to be well thought of. We want to have a, a reputation that is stellar. We want people to like us. And so we do not preach the Gospel to them. The sin, I call it it's a sin of idolatry, it's the sin of loving ourselves and our own comfort and reputation higher than the glory of God. That is, we are more interested in what our life is about than we are God's glory on display. And so therefore, the lips are sealed. We do not speak. We fail to preach the Gospel. We conceal the glory of God. We substitute our own comfort. That, beloved, is idolatry. Idolatry. Secondly, we participate in the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy. 
Pretending to be something that we are not. Now, we usually think of hypocrisy in, in terms of pretending to be more righteous than we really are, right? That's typically how we think about the word hypocrisy. But here the sin is to be is pretending to believe something that we do not. Our hypocrisy when we when we are around unbelievers is the sin of pretending that we believe something that we do not believe. And it kind of goes like this. The typical unbeliever is not hesitant to express sometimes quite forcefully their own world view, right? They are not in the least bit shy or bashful about telling you how they believe the world operates. That God weighs people on a great cosmic scale, right? And that He is not a sovereign creator with rule over all humanity and all of the universe. They tell you that they believe and that their works are of such meritorious value that at the end of it all, God will look at that and say, boy, you're good, come on in. That is their worldview, and they don't hesitate at all to tell you that. Here's where our hypocrisy comes in. We stand there silently in the face of all of that, and we raise not one word of contradiction. Not one word of contradiction. We do not challenge that worldview at all. We don't speak up. And when we do not speak up, we are tacitly giving approval to it. Now, we know it's not true, but we're not willing to let anybody know that we don't think it's true. And so we tacitly approve it. And at that moment, we are acting the part of a hypocrite. Unwilling to stand up for what they believe. We also engage in the sin of unbelief. We engage in the sin of unbelief. When we are confronted by the pretensions of human wisdom and power, we lapse into unbelief. We lose the confidence that we have this morning in the truthfulness of the gospel. See, right now we're all surrounded, right, with, with uh, other believers. And so we feel pretty, pretty tough, pretty strong, right? Security in numbers. And so we feel really, you know, boy, if an unbelieving person came in here today, you know, we would tell them how it really is. Because we outnumber them 401, see? <laughs> and then we get on the outside world. See, then we, go, then we go to work tomorrow morning, right? Or we go to school tomorrow. Or we're talking across the fence or the hedge with our neighbor next door. Or we're sitting around the table at a family dinner. And all of a sudden, all the confidence, all the all the conviction, all the strength that we have, it all kind of... It just all fizzles out. It's gone. Now we're not sure. Maybe, maybe it's really not all the way we think it is. I mean, this person has some pretty powerful arguments. Maybe there's something we really haven't thought about. And, and for a moment, just an instant, a moment in time, we've, we've lost our confidence. We've lost our faith. It's been It's been fractured. The Apostle Peter, speaking to the scattered and persecuted believers, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14-15, he says, Do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is, set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you 
to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. See, we don't know what God might be doing with that person who so forcefully and vocally expresses their opposition to the gospel. We don't really know what might be going on inside their heart. We don't know what God's doing in them. You know, I read about a guy who was so violently opposed to the gospel that he went out of his way to harass the believers. He even organized and planned violence against them. Incited it against them. And he, and he was so proud, so arrogant, so self-righteous that he would blaspheme Christ. I mean, if there were anybody who you would think there's no chance for this guy, this would be the one that I read about. You know, and one day in the midst of his efforts to extinguish the church, Christ reached out and saved Saul of Tarsus. And he called him to be Paul the Apostle, set apart for the propagation of the gospel he once tried to destroy. See, we don't know what's going on in people's lives. We don't know what God is doing. Beloved, when we sin, and I believe we do, and I know that I do, when I sin by refusing to speak the Gospel to someone, I also know that the very Gospel that at that moment I'm refusing to stand up for is the very Gospel that saves me from that sin. See, when Christ died on that cross, He took the penalty for my sin, including the sin of being unwilling to speak for Him. His grace overwhelms it. But we cannot just rest in that grace. We must move forward in obedience. Paul knew the temptation to shrink back. He knew it. But in the face of that temptation, he says to the Roman Christians here, in verse 15, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are at Rome. Why? Because I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Why, Paul, are you not ashamed? Why are you not ashamed? And he gives us his second reason. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek Paul says the second reason that he is eager to preach, the first is he's not ashamed. The second reason that he's eager to preach is because the gospel is universally powerful. The temptation to shrink back has been overcome because Paul knows that, it, that although this message appears to be weak and it appears to be foolish, in reality it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Not just one power among many, but the almighty power of God Himself directed to the salvation of lost sinners. We say that we believe the Bible teaches that God is omnipotent, right? All-powerful. We 
can safely say that the gospel is the omnipotence of God operative unto salvation. It is the all-powerfulness of God directed to the salvation of lost people. That is a reason not to be ashamed and it is a reason to be eager to proclaim it. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. A traveler moving at the speed of light can circumnavigate the equator of the earth seven and a half times in one second. Traveling in a modern jet airplane at a ground speed of 500 miles an hour, it takes about four hours to cross the continental United States. The speed of light is power. The sun produces energy, the equivalent, at least of the website that I went to, and this blew me away. The sun produces energy, the equivalent of a hundred billion, that's with a B, 100 billion H-bombs per second. That's power. That is power. But neither the speed of light nor the energy production of the sun can regenerate a cold and spiritually dead sinner. It cannot give eternal life. But the Gospel can. But the Gospel can. It is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Gospel is a life-changing message. It is the only force in the universe that can rescue a sinner from damnation. Its power exceeds that of the sun. It exceeds that of the sun. It takes someone who is openly hostile to their Creator, destined eternally for damnation and rightfully so, and transforms them into one who loves their Creator and whose life and direction is so rearranged that now the pursuit of the glory of God becomes their greatest goal and good. It transforms one from a person who hates God and disbelieves the Scriptures into one who loves God and desires to obey the Scriptures. That's power. That is the omnipotent power of God operative unto salvation. And the means by which this salvation is activated is the instrument of faith. You see that verse 16? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. There is a universal aspect to this power. It is available to everyone who believes. If you have not experienced the power of the Gospel to transform your life this morning, it is available to you right now. If you will believe. That is to put your full confidence, your full trust, your weight of your destiny upon the God who justifies the ungodly by means of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Theologians talk about three aspects of saving faith. First, they, call, they say it, it's comprised of you have to have a knowledge of the truth. 
Saving faith requires a knowledge of the truth. That is, you have to know what it is to believe. And then you must have intellectual agreement with that truth. That is, you must believe it's correct. You must know what it is. You must believe it's correct. But those two alone will not save you. There are millions and millions of people who know the truth and have intellectual agreement with the truth and are just as lost and damned as the pagan. The darkest part of this world. You must personally embrace the truth. You must entrust yourself to the truth. You must embrace the Gospel by faith. All of these aspects must be there. You must know what it is. You must agree to what it is. And you must embrace it by faith. It must capture your heart and your mind. You know, saving faith, beloved, is the great leveler of humanity, isn't it? It is the great leveler of humanity. That is, that everyone is saved in exactly the same way. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, wealthy, poor, educated, uneducated. At the foot of the cross, we are all leveled. No distinction. Look again at that verse. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, but it is available to everyone. Wherever there is faith, wherever there is faith in the truth of the Gospel, there the omnipotence of God is active in salvation. It is available to all. Paul talks here about the priority, the Jew first, Also to the Greek or the Gentiles, he's not saying that the Jews have some sort of favored position before God. There's somehow they get in before everyone else or they get in more easily than everyone else. That's not his point at all. He is talking theologically that God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. And that through the seed of Abraham would come the Messiah, a Jewish Messiah who would redeem the world. We know the nation has rejected that Messiah for now. But when we get to chapters 9 through 11, we will see Paul's exposition of their future redemption, their embracing of that reality. So for now, the Jewish nation, for the most part, remains cut off from the very Messiah who came to save them. Throwing open the door for you and I to embrace the gospel by faith. Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of it. Why am I not ashamed of it? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is it the power of God to salvation? And that is where he gives us his third reason in verse 17. Why is it the power of God? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul now explains for us here in verse 17 why the Gospel is that omnipotent power of God active in salvation. The answer, simply put, is it is through the Gospel that unrighteous sinners are made righteous before a holy God. Unrighteous sinners are made righteous before a holy God. They are given a righteous standing. 
That's why verses 16 and 17 really are the gospel in capsule form. That's why when the truth of these verses broke through the darkness and the light of that German monk, Martin Luther, he says the blinders came off, the light flooded in, and his life was so radically changed that he took on the empire single-handedly. Paul is going to spend the next 11 chapters, right? expanding upon this capsule statement here in verses 16 and 17. So we're not going to try to do it this morning. We've got plenty of time. We'll make a few comments here. The word righteousness that he's talking about here in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The word righteousness denotes the quality of being righteous. That is fully conforming in character and actions to that which is right. Fully conforming in both your actions and your character to that which is right. And right is determined by God's standards. Righteousness is essentially an ethical term. It's an ethical term. And the meaning here of this expression, the righteousness of God, it has had a long history in the church and the, the literature about it is voluminous. So we're going to cut through the mustard and for our purposes this morning here, I'm just going to give it to you very simply, okay? When Paul says here that for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, what he is referring to is our status as a believer before God. It is an expression that refers to our status as a believer as we are before God, that which God has given to us and how we stand before Him. It is not a, a, a statement of of how God is in and of Himself righteous and thus our judge, but it's a statement about how we are righteous or accounted as righteous by God. The NIV, the New International Version, I think does a good job on this verse translating the sense of the expression here where they translate it, for in it the righteousness from God is revealed. I think that's the point that Paul is making. It is not the righteousness of God in the sense of whereby God is righteous. It is the righteousness that comes from God and comes to us by faith. Paul says this righteousness from God is revealed. That is, it is made manifest by the Gospel. Revealed, beloved, not in the sense that, um, that we just understand what it is, but that the Gospel actually reveals its saving power. The gospel is the righteousness of God in the sense that it is active and it is dynamic and it is brought to bear upon a man's sinful situation. We receive, according to the Apostle Paul, and he will fill this out in the chapters to come, we receive the righteousness that comes from God through the gospel. That's why it is the power of God unto salvation. And that's why Paul's not ashamed of it. And that's why he's eager to preach it. See, it is in the Gospel that the, the problem of mankind is resolved. God is holy and just and we are not. And therefore, we cannot enter into His presence. Something must have happened. God cannot negotiate His holiness. He cannot lower the standards. He cannot reduce the bar so that you can trip over it. He can only maintain the bar of holiness where it is. And so man is here and God is here. And the gulf between us is impassable. We need His righteousness. And so He sends it. He, he, he gives it to us through the Gospel. 
How does it happen? By faith. From faith to faith is the expression. This is an interesting expression, from faith to faith. It's, there's one other place in the New Testament where we have a similar grammatical construction. It's over in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, where there the Apostle Paul talks about the Gospel being an aroma. Do you remember that? Or a smell that people smell on us. And to some people it smells like death to death, and to others it smells like life to life. That idea of death to death, life to life, here, faith to faith, it's, it's a statement of intensification. It's a statement of intensification. What he is communicating to us here, for in it the righteousness from God is revealed or made manifest by faith alone. By faith alone. By faith from first to last. Again, the NIV translates for us. By faith from first to last. It's a statement of intensification. Sola fide, the Latin, right? By faith alone. By faith alone. The amazing thing about this gospel is that when we embrace it by faith, we remain a wicked sinner. We remain a wicked sinner. But we have received a covering of righteousness. The righteousness that comes from God. It meets the standard. It is not infused into our soul whereby we inherently become righteous. We remain a wicked sinner. We now wear a righteous robe. And that righteous robe enables us to enter into the presence of God. Over in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul's talking along the same things. He says that his goal now is that he may gain Christ, might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the statement here in verse 17. It is the righteousness from God that comes to us on the basis of faith alone. You know, by nature, we view righteousness as something that we can achieve by our own meritorious efforts. That's how we typically look at righteousness. It's the result of something that we do, right? We even award meritorious service awards to people in recognition of their righteousness. The whole world's orientation towards righteousness is that it is something that they do. Paul says here that our right standing before God has nothing to do with our own human merit. It is received by faith. It is an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness from outside the system. It is a robe that is placed upon us and it is received from God by faith. That is a radical departure that runs contrary to the wisdom of the ages and to the basic instincts of the human soul. Fallen that it is. Right? Since the beginning of time, virtue is thought of as an achievement. But the righteous standing that God demands is something we cannot supply, and so it is something He must give. Something He must supply for us. And He does it when we embrace, by faith alone, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't thought of this, and maybe you have. 
But absent the righteousness that God has given you in Christ, you do recognize, I hope, that you are just as wicked, just as damnable, just as deserving of hell as you were the day before you believed. You may be a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ for the last 50 years. You may have walked in, in, in increasing levels of obedience to Him. God may have used you to do great things in His name. But do not ever forget that absent His righteous cloak given to you, received by faith, you deserve hell now just as much as you always did. You are not righteous in and of yourself. Your righteousness comes as a gift from the outside. You are entirely dependent on that. Paul supports this declaration that the righteousness is received from God by faith against any attack or notion that maybe this is some new idea, some new teaching. He says this thing is rooted in the Word of God from the beginning. So he reaches back into the Old Testament to the prophet Habakkuk. And he quotes there, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Demonstrating the unity of this message, this teaching from old to new. Beloved, it has always been this way. It has always been this way. The only people acceptable to stand in the presence of their Creator are those who have received His righteousness by faith as a gift. If you have not that gift this morning, you have no righteousness. But today can be your day. Today is your day. The Scripture says, behold, right? Today is the day of salvation. Call out to Him. Acknowledge your failure. Declare your bankruptcy. Acknowledge the fact that you don't have it. And call out to Him to supply it. Lord God, I believe that You sent Jesus Christ, Your only Son, to die in my place on that cross. I believe that all of the wrath that was poured out on Him was Mine. That I justly deserve it. That all that befell Him was My iniquity being punished. Not someone else's, but Mine. I believe He rose from the dead the third day demonstrating to all who would have eyes to see that He died not for His own sin, that He died for mine. I believe. Save me for Jesus' sake. We're going out this afternoon, beloved, into South Upland. A group of us are going to go door to door. I don't know, 40, 50, maybe 60. Love to see 70 of us come out. We're going to go door to door in South Upland and we're going to knock on doors and we have no idea who is behind that door. None. We might find the most cultured or the most uncultured. The most learned or the most unlearned. We will find people from all walks of life. All social strata. 
And we have no idea what the message, what kind of reception it will generate, do we? It may be, no thanks, I'm not interested. It may be, get out of here. It may be worse. It may be, yeah, go ahead. Open the Bible and let me see these things. We have no idea. No idea. But this we do know. That if the person behind that door will repent of their sin, will turn from their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope. And the Scripture says, they shall receive the righteousness of God and live eternally. That's a message that I, for one, am eager to preach. I hope you'll join me. Let's pray. Our Father, I have no confidence in myself. For I am a man with feet of clay. There is no brilliance that resides within me. My tongue is thick. My mind is slow. I have no giftedness. No ability, no means to reach out and affect the soul of a man. I cannot even see inside. How could I possibly make internal changes? I am fully and totally dependent on You. I am but a sower of Gospel seed. A seed that I am convinced is the only means of salvation to all who would embrace it by faith. That I am convinced that in it is the righteousness of God. And so, our Father, I am eager to spread that seed. I pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters would be eager as well. That You would forgive us our sin of idolatry hypocrisy and unbelief that so frequently overwhelms us and snuffs out our gospel message. That You would embolden us today to be like one beggar to another telling people where to find the bread of life. May You go before us open blind eyes For your name's sake, amen.